1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining me at the channel today. So I just finished talking with Noriko Manabe, About her new book, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Protest Music After Fukushima. This came out in 2015 with Oxford University Press, and it's actually the first, as you'll hear toward the end of the conversation, of two planned volumes that collectively treat protest music in contemporary and modern Japan. Now what this book does is it takes us into, after um, laying the foundation with background to um, anti-nuclear protests and the role of music therein, it takes us into four main kinds of space that are occupied, navigated, and created by musical protests in Japan, specifically um, in the cases of anti-nuclear protests after Fukushima. Now, you hear us talking about these cyberspace demonstrations, festivals, and recordings, and importantly, as um, Manabe illustrates here in this book, each of these spaces involves a uh, particular kinds of power structures. It involves particular kinds of constraints on content and on the distribution of music and of uh, protest voices. It involves degrees of censorship, including self-censorship, and you'll hear us talking a whole lot about that in the conversation to come. And it involves, in the words of the book, activist efforts to reclaim a voice. Now, the book is based on really extensive research that was done on trips to Japan between 2011 and 2015, which included participant observation at dozens of protests, um, at uh, musical events and attendance at those events. And you'll hear us again talking about some of that in the conversation to come. Now, what I want to especially highlight um, for you, uh, and it comes up again in the conversation, is that there's a companion website that I can't um, recommend enough using and having at hand as you're working through the book, if you get your hands on a copy of the book um, and are able to read it, because what it does is it gives you the ability to really watch and listen to and experience um, some of the examples that are so formative in shaping the analysis of the book in all of the chapters. Okay, so with that, I'll let you get to it, and just thank you um, so much for listening, for supporting the channel in that way, and I hope that you enjoy, and in particular, I highly recommend going to the companion website, and as you're looking at um, and reading about the No Nukes uh, concert uh, late in the book, listen to the Kraftwerk um, performance, or watch the Kraftwerk performance of radioactivity, which is really super cool. I'll try to link to that in the blog post. Have fun. I'm here today to talk with Noriko Manabe about her new book, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Protest Music After Fukushima. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Noriko, and thanks so much, both for writing a really super interesting book with a really super interesting companion website we'll talk about, and also for making time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you, Carla, for your invitation.
1: Of course. So let's start with the traditional question for the channel. How did you come to the field? Why Japan? Why the academic study of Japan? And why contemporary Japan?
0: I was actually born in Japan. I was born in Kyoto. And I grew up in the United States. And um, uh, my first uh, phase of my adult life was actually spent working in the Japanese financial markets. Hmm. Um. I came to that because I happened to go to Japan after I graduated from Stanford Business School and I realized that I understood what was going on much better than my traveling companion. And so I went I went to Japan and I worked in the Japanese financial markets for a very long period of time. And uh, when I decided that I had enough of doing that, I went back to graduate school in ethnomusicology and music theory. And uh, while I was doing my studies... I became very interested in Japanese poppy music. Uh, I had covered the media industry as a stock analyst in Japan, and this included uh, record companies like Avex and Sony Music or and Sony the parent company itself. And so I was already familiar with the way the music industry works and the media industry works. And so studies in poppy music in Japan happened to dovetail quite nicely uh, with that. So I started my academic career by publishing a couple of articles on Japanese hip hop. I published an article on Japanese rap and language, and I published a second article on, on Japanese hip hop DJs and how they interpret Japanese-ness in square quotes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so I have a long-term project that looks at club musics in Japan, including hip-hop, reggae, and EDM. So I had gone to Japan in 2011 and 2012 to finish that particular book, and as it so happened, uh, many of my contacts in reggae and hip-hop were quite involved in the anti-negro movement, like um, ECD and Shingo Two and Ranking Taxi. These were all people that I had known before. And so... Uh, What they told me about what was going on with Fukushima and the anti-Negro protests really concerned me. And so the more I was there, um, I looked more and more into it and and I realized how crucial it was. And then, of course, living in Japan during 2012, I I saw the entire movement really blossom in front of me in a very, very large and and, uh, memorable way. So I felt that um, that particular project needed to be completed before my other music project on popular music. Mm
1: -hmm. So you've already said a little bit about how you came to this particular project, and that's usually what I would ask you next. But how Mm -hmm. about, how did you come to this particular title for this project? The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Protest Music After Fukushima. Where did that come from, and can you take us into that story a little bit?
0: Yes, well, actually, that title is multi-layered and intertextual in two different ways. Um, Most people will recognize that title as the Gil Scott Heron song, right? (laughs) The revolution will not be televised where the uh, African-American, you know, proto-rapper is essentially talking about how um, African-Americans are misrepresented on TV by citing every, index of television in the 1970s, you know, to, to illustrate that point. And uh, there was, there's a Japanese rapper named Shingo Tu who remade that particular track uh, called Kakumei wa Terebi ni which is Japanese, where the revolution will not be televised. And what he does is he uses that premise of, of indexes from what is happening on television at that particular time to illustrate how... Um, the media is distorting what is going on in Fukushima. That you know, certain viewpoints are not being presented. That people are being thrown off the air and and, and that kind of thing by quoting everything that was going on on, on television. Mm-hmm. So I thought that particular remake by Shingo To was extremely clever, and uh, it really encapsulated the idea of of my book, which is that. You know, the media in Japan isn't censored, but it's Mm self-censoring. And uh, there are certain choices being made so that certain kinds of certain points of view and certain messages are not getting across. And one of them uh, is the extent of of anti-nuclear protests or the anti-nuclear or opposition to having nuclear power in Japan. And that's what I mean by the revolution will not be televised because anti-nuclear views are simply not shown to the degree that they could be uh, in Japan, particularly on television news.
1: Great. And this theme of self censorship and the relevance of the case studies that you're talking about here for how we understand um, and sort of historicize and also maybe theorize censorship is very much something that comes up throughout the book. And listeners to the channel um, might think back to and remind themselves of, if they listen to it, um, the interview with John Abel. Whose book on censorship actually comes up um, really interestingly in your study as a as at least one other uh, work to think with as we think about the implications of and the nature of censorship and self-censorship in this particular frame that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's one of the yeah one of the interesting things that John Abel points out about you know censorship in the 1920s and 1930s is that. Um, First, um, most of it is actually self-censored, but uh, one of the more uh, insidious things that such, kind, you know, such types of self-censorship do is that, um, um, is that it, it actually limits the channels of thinking or the pathways of thinking. And um, um, I think that's actually quite true in what is going on in Japan at the moment in terms of nuclear power and other political issues. Because if you don't allow yourself to say or think in certain ways, then it really limits one's possibilities of discourse.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we'll get to that, I think, in detail in the hour to come. So first, Mm -hmm. what I'll do is just spend a couple of minutes... Laying a little bit of the foundation Um, and in so the book is broken up into a number of sections. And in the first chapter, there's an introduction that really lays the groundwork for understanding what's to come. So I'll Mm -hmm. just very briefly lay this out, and then we can dive in. Uh, So the book is centrally concerned with the issue of constraints, at least as I read this here, constraints Mm -hmm. that limit people, both uh, ordinary citizens and musicians, and musicians, of course, are citizens as well, from speaking out on sensitive political issues. And it looks Mm -hmm. carefully at how the content, the role of music, and the performance style of music in a particular social movement vary according to three parameters. You talk about the Parameter of the person, the position, in the words of the book, of the person playing the music, space, mm-hmm. the space in which the music is played. And the book looks mm-hmm. at constraints and opportunities in four kinds of space where anti-nuclear music in particular is performed, cyberspace demonstrations, festivals and recordings. And we'll talk about those in turn. And also time, um, the political conditions that underlie the particular movement at that point in time. And you take us through early in the book three periods um, in the time period under study, 2011 to 2015, that have called for different kinds of performances. And we'll talk a little bit about that as they come up um, in the course of the study. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers, that's a basic general foundation. But I kind of want to um, now dive into the meat of the book itself. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting, um, that comes up very early on, is you talk early in the book, um, in the first chapter about your decision to use the term Fukushima, right?
0: Mm, Rather yes. than
1: like 311 in the title. So that's really interesting and important. And, and uh, could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yes, um, I've actually personally been chided for using the word Fukushima in conference presentations. And this is why I started to think about it um, a little bit more. Uh, the politically um, correct way, if you will, of talking about Fukushima is often 3.11, which actually references all three uh Disasters that happened on March 11, 2011, which were the earthquake, which triggered a tsunami, which triggered the um, the, uh, the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima. And the reason why I've chosen um, to 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 talk about it in terms of Fukushima rather than 311 is because it's actually uncontroversial to talk about the earthquake and tsunami. And in fact, there's a there's obviously a lot of sympathy for the victims of the tsunami and the earthquake. Uh, most of the musicians, in fact, just about every musician that I know that has anything to do with Japan has held a charity event or or done something to try to help the people uh, in the Tohoku region that was, stuck, was struck by the triple disaster. But it's extremely controversial to talk about the nuclear disaster itself. And therefore, I thought... Um, it's it's part of the silencing of the nuclear disaster and speaking of nuclear power in a negative way that I wanted to highlight. And therefore, I'm talking about Fukushima quite explicitly. Now, it's it's also controversial to reference the, um, the nuclear disaster in terms of saying Fukushima, because Fukushima, as you know, uh, isn't just a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fukushima is the name of an entire prefecture. It's the name of a city, the capital city of Fukushima Prefecture, which is actually, you know, about 100 kilometers from uh, the the nuclear disaster. So, and and in fact, uh, the towns around the Fukushima Daiichi plant are actually not called Fukushima. So there's a lot of confusion about the name Fukushima. So um, there's, there tends to be a fair amount of um, sensitivity, particularly amongst Fukushima residents, about using the word Fukushima to describe that particular disaster because they feel that their entire homeland is being painted in shame. Um, you know, it's become synonymous with a nuclear disaster and, you know, who wants that with their hometown. So um I think to the extent possible in the book itself, when I'm talking about the Fukushima disaster, I try to make it clear that I'm talking about Fukushima Daiichi rather than Fukushima the, the prefecture. But at the same time, I wanted to distance myself from from using three eleven as if it were a way to talk about the nuclear disaster. Mm-hmm. Because I see three eleven and the nuclear disaster as actually being quite separate politically. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. And that's actually a really important and a really useful one to think with, I think that comes up right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So as we move uh, further into the book, we move into a chapter, chapter two, that looks at, um, in the words of the book, power structures and the financial incentives that have helped nuclear power grow since the early 1950s and have kept it in place despite widespread criticism post Fukushima Daiichi. And what the book does is it takes us into a kind of history of this and looks at some of the most significant elements and significant events that we need to understand in order to understand as readers what drove citizens and musicians to protest um, and to protest against nuclear power specifically um, in the first place. So we have this foundation to then take us into the more contemporary examples. Now, this chapter um, talks a lot about uh, the nuclear village, right? For listeners who may not be um, familiar with that notion and, and what's important for us to understand about that notion in order to understand the kind of foundation you want us to have as we move forward, can you talk a little bit about the importance of that um, for this case and in, in terms of how it motivates how you think about this?
0: Yes, um, the term nuclear village is actually a pejorative term because the um, the Japanese word muda or village here is being used in a way that connotes a certain kind of insularity and inability to, to get out of it. Mm-hmm. So, so the nuclear village is a fairly um, uh, tight-knit group of people who benefit from nuclear power. And, uh, it is often described as having five pillars. Obviously, there is the nuclear industry, which involves electric power companies, um, the companies that supply the electric power industry, like the large engineering companies of Hitachi, Toshiba, Mitsubishi, and, um, their suppliers and, you know, many of the others that, that are in the supplying chain or value added chain of electric power. But, um, in addition to that, there is the um, the bureaucracy that supports nuclear power, and uh, for most of the time, when people think about the bureaucracy, bureaucracy that supports nuclear power, they think about uh, METI, which is the Ministry of, of, um, of uh, Ministry of Industry, Trade, and uh, Economics, mm-hmm. and um, that indus- that bureaucracy at the time of the nuclear disaster. Had, uh, was in charge of both promoting nuclear power, but also regulating it. Mm-hmm. Um, the regulation was done by um, the Nuclear Industry Industry and Safety um, Administer- Agency, or NISA, and uh, they were housed within Medi, and people, were, were, people would come and go between NISA and Medi all the time. So th- there was a clear conflict of interest there. Um, many people from M- NISA also um, were former um, electric power industry employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a certain disincentive to be that hard on their former employers. And also there is the um, uh, the practice of amakudari or descent from the heavens in Japanese bureaucracies where people who are in the ministries when they retire will take up... Um, uh, board of directors positions in the electric power industries and so forth. So, um, you know, the board of, ele- board of directors and most of the electric power industries tends to, tends to have a number of ministry, you know, former ministers. So mm-hmm. that tends to be a disincentive for anybody working in the bureaucracy to say bad things about the industries that they would otherwise, you know, become directors of later. Right. So, so that was another issue. Um, A third pillar is the media, which received large amounts of uh, advertising spend uh, from the nuclear industry, not only from the electric power companies themselves, but also from uh, government associated agencies that supported uh, nuclear power. Um, And then you had academics who were often receiving research money from TEPCO or the government agencies that supported nuclear power. And then finally, you had local uh, governments um, that were typically wooed and entertained by uh, the nuclear power industry and its um, and its supporters, Mm -hmm. in order to to place uh, new nuclear reactors or new nuclear sites.
1: Now, one of the really interesting issues that comes up here, as we understand uh, how this shapes uh, the practices and performances that. Are to come and the nature of the analysis and the arguments of the book brings us back to one of the early things that you mentioned, which is this idea of censorship or self-censorship. And in mm-hmm. fact, in this chapter, um, there are lots of ways of thinking about and that you help us think about the importance of secrecy and of silencing to shaping the kinds of protests that happen, the way they happen, the importance of music um, in shaping this, and also the kinds of protests that don't happen. And examples of that are myriad here. We won't have time to talk about them individually, but I'll just kind of mark them and then ask you to talk about one of them. you talk okay. here about um, the importance of the fact that demonstrations are not covered in mass media all the time, right? And that, that, that becomes important later on. You talk about right. why some people have been reticent to protest, right? The high social cost, police videotaping the protests. And you also talk about, in terms of secrecy and silencing, something that will come back to at the end of the book, but maybe we can lay the groundwork for that here. And that's something called the secrecy law. Now, for listeners who don't know what that is and why that might be important to think about here can you super briefly just kind of explain that what do we need to understand about the secrecy law um, in this context
0: okay the secrecy law was a law that was passed by the Abe government in december 2013 and uh what it in a in a really really oversimplified nutshell. What it basically says is that if I as an academic or someone as a journalist or even somebody who is a diet member um, asks a bureaucrat or somebody in one of the government agencies a question about a state secret uh, in a way that is considered to be overly coercive, then that person could be put in jail for five years. But because whatever is a state secret is a self-estate secret, you wouldn't really be able to defend yourself very well. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know what you were defending yourself against. Mm-hmm. So um, it's uh, it's kind of a silencing law. It's been flagged by uh, the United Nations, Human Rights Council. Uh, it's been opposed by the... Um, the Japanese uh, Law Board. It's been um, it's been objected to by the majority of ja- the Japanese population, uh, amongst many other groups. Mm-hmm. But uh, it still passed through the Diet, and then it was you know it's been it's been put into effect as of, la- as of late 2014.
1: Thank you so much. And we're going to come back to that, um, I think, by the conclusion of our conversation. Now, one thing I want to just mark here, um, just to mention for listeners, because it's fabulous is that throughout the chapters, there are references to a companion website for the book. Um, I can't recommend exploring this highly enough. I'll make sure there's a link to it um, in the post that goes up with the podcast. And it's really wonderful. So as um, as a reader, as you're working through the chapters, and this chapter is an example of that, there'll be little um, uh, icons that direct you to examples of, sometimes they are um, YouTube videos of performances, sometimes it's footage of protest movements, There are all kinds of things, commercials that you can go to to illustrate and exemplify what's happening in the book. Um, And so shout out to the companion website. I wish I wish more books did this. It's totally fabulous. And I think it's integral to the experience of the book. And so thank you for that. And I think that's fabulous. Thank you. So as we move forward from this, and there's a lot in chapter two um, that explores all of these these things that we're talking about, we move to a chapter that looks at, um, in the words of the book, the disincentives that musicians face in voicing their political opinions, right? You've already talked about the fact that nuclear power is a taboo topic for musicians, and there's a certain amount of self-censorship involved. And this chapter looks at the lives and activities of some of the people who have been active in the anti-nuclear movement. Okay, so just very briefly, um, there are a number of people, of individuals in this book, and this chapter, uh, exemplifies that. Who are fascinating. And one comes up here, and I'd love if you could talk a little bit about um, kind of what you think is significant about understanding him and his activities. And this is Sakamoto. This is Sakamoto um, Ryuichi of the Yellow Magic Orchestra. Listeners may be familiar with him in that context. For you, what's uh, can you talk us through, you know, what's interesting for you about his engagement and involvement in this movement and the way that he's been active, um, at least in this early context, um, early in the book?
0: Okay, well, um, as, Carla, as Carla was mentioning, Sakamoto Ryuichi is probably the best-known um, musician from Japan uh, uh, throughout the world. Um, not only was he one of the founding members of Yellow Magic Orchestra, but he's an Academy Award-winning composer. Um, you know, he's, um, he's even starred with David Bowie um, in... Um, um, Merry Cl- Christmas, uh, Mr. Lawrence, and, um, and you know, and he's generally a very respected figure and uh, revered figure in Japan. And um, he's been he's been one of the most vocal um, artists in Japan against nuclear power. Um, and there have been a couple of them, but not as many as you might think, given that seventy percent of the population actually opposes nuclear power. Um, so one of the things he's done is to um, to organize the the no nukes series of concerts which have been happening every year since two thousand mm-hmm. um, and twelve uh, and for the these concerts uh, he invites various anti-nuclear um, artists to 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 uh, participate in the concert and throughout the concert between sets there are videos that that um, show scenes of the, the cities that had to be abandoned in Fukushima because of the radiation or artistic, um, videos that are made by Avanoto or, or other artists that, um, that depict an anti-nuclear view in a very artistic way or interviews of, of, um, activists working, um, against nuclear power or for renewable energy. And, um, and so it's a very educational, as well as uh, you know, very musical and very enjoyable kind of festival. <laughs> um, and he's also um, he's also attended and participated in um, street protests, including the, um, the the weekly protest that takes place um, in front of the Diet, which has been going on since March 2012 and is still going on, which is quite remarkable, you know, four years later. <laughs> And um, he's also participated in the quarterly or, you know, semi, you know, they, they happen about three or four times a year. There are various large protests that typically get anywhere between, you know, a couple of thousand to as many as 170,000 protesters that are run by, so that or goodbye, nuclear power. And he's spoken uh, and even played at uh, some of their, their uh, demonstrations. So he's been quite active in the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the really horrible things that happened to to Sakamoto was that um, he gave the speech at a sonar Genpatsu um, demonstration that attracted 170,000 people in July of 2012. It was certainly one of the largest demonstrations that took place in 2012 and probably one of the largest ever in Japan. And um, one of the things he said was that um, it's it's just electricity or it's only electricity and we shouldn't be endangering the environment or people's lives over just electricity. And so what the pro nuclear people on Twitter focus on was the fact that he said it's only electricity. Mm-hmm. And they went on a Twitter, you know, rampage, you know, bashing him over this um saying that um here's this guy who made his name being a techno-pop artist. Isn't this kind of ironic? And um, and essentially mocking and making fun of him in a really bad way. And this trolling was quite bad enough, but it was then legitimized when the Sankei Shimbun, which is one of the largest um, national newspapers in Japan, printed a front-page editorial uh, mocking him as an old man chasing a fad. and um, And that kind of legitimized all this trolling. So, um, negative articles about Sakamoto came out in a number of magazines that are picked up by salarymen, and uh, and you know it was it was just a a, a terrible kind of very personal and uh, and nasty kind of bashing that went on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so anybody who actually comes out. Very positive uh, or very negative on eager power and and for exiting eager power can be humiliated and shamed in a public way like this even if they're you know one of the the most revered musicians in Japan um, you know there have been uh, you know there have been other incidents that have been mm-hmm. quite nasty but you know unverifiable where Yeah, I don't think I want to say this on the air, actually. No
1: (laughs) no problem at all. So so what I'll say is that there are, um, he's one of several examples in this chapter of people, uh, of musicians who have spoken out in various ways. Um, and and who have been educators, right, in various ways. So you've already mentioned um, Shingo too. There are other people in here. So this is a really beautiful way, I think, in this chapter of appreciating musicians as educators, as well as other kinds of things, right? This is not just... uh, I just think it's really good to think with, right, in this context. And you introduce us to a lot of really, really fascinating people, and he's Mm -hmm. one of them, but also introduce us to, as you just mentioned, the consequences for a number of these people of speaking out. And this is one of the reasons why the next um, phase of the book becomes so interesting and so important, right? So we Mm -hmm. could spend another hour just talking about this chapter, Uh, but what I'll do is kind of move us into the section of the book. Um, This is section two that looks specifically at spaces of protest. And there are four major spaces, and I talked about those a little bit um, at the beginning of our conversation. So the first space that you look at here in Chapter 4 really, um, I think, helps us understand some of the ways that musicians, um, performers, but also uh, ordinary citizens have used this kind of space as a way to try to negotiate uh, voices of protest in a way that is a little bit safer from some of these repercussions, including including repercussions for, you know, saying things that were not intended um, in the way that they were taken up. Like this, it's only electricity. Now, chapter four um, looks at some major ways of overcoming this kind of silencing we've been talking about. Um, It talks about the importance of the openness that cyberspace creates um, of mobile accessibility and the kind of interplay between real and cyberspaces that happens in terms of making uh, particular pieces of music available, in terms of communication across those realms and blurring of those realms. And it also talks about the ways that cyberspace actively enables participation and actively gives music this kind of mobilizing force. And you talk about um, some examples uh, therein. And you also talked, um, I think, already a little bit, I don't know if this was before the recording or during, about the fact that cyberspace enables a kind of anonymity um, that safeguards, um, a little bit of, um, of what's going on here. So for you, um, just kind of briefly, what's, uh, what looms largest for you in your mind about the importance of cyberspace as a kind of space in terms of pushing back against this silencing and
0: secrecy? Well, the, the most interesting part for me was that, um, there tends to be a, uh, a greater preponderance toward using the internet anonymously or pseudonymously in Japan than in d- the United States or Korea or other countries. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the in- impact that it has is actually quite large because the so-called spiral of silence, uh, which is a concept uh, introduced by Noel Neumann, um, tends to be stronger in Japan than in 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 the United States or in other Asian countries even. Mm-hmm. Meaning that um, if somebody thinks that uh, society at large or even the community in which they live or even the person that they're talking to is not going to agree with something that they're going to say, then they will typically stay silent about it, particularly if they are women or people in lower positions socially. And... Um, and what cyberspace actually um, allows you to do is two things. One is it allows you to uh, interact politically using a pseudonym. And um, at least according to data that was taken in 2010, it appeared that about, you know, that as many as 78% of the Japanese population who had a Twitter account had a pseudonymous in that, uh, Twitter account. That meant that um, people could actually say things that they would not typically say to a coworker or a family member even, or a friend uh, on, on the internet. And, um, and in so doing people were actually able to find like-minded individuals. Mm-hmm. And in that process, social media actually helped to build a lot of affective momentum uh, toward a particular cause, which I think a number of other writers on social movements has also talked about. And, uh, and music was also a very important part of building that affective wave. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the examples I talk about in this chapter is, is Saito Kazuyoshi's It Was Always a Lie. Yes. Um, that particular song came out on April 7th, 2011 on cyberspace and, uh, he tried to upload it or somebody uploaded it in a way that was supposedly an effort to be um, anonymous because Saito Kazuyoshi is wearing this big cowboy hat and he's wearing sunglasses and it's hilarious. But of course he's, he's singing a version of his own song. <laughs> but um, this, the, the particular song that he sang was um, had lyrics that were anti-nuclear, but the original uh, music itself came from a Shiseido commercial that he wrote. And and so everybody actually knew the song because because it had been a top ten hit and it had been played over and over and over again as you say, the commercial on television, and because of that and the fact that it was a very catchy song with a nice catchy chorus, it became it caught on right away. It was you know it was a big viral hit. Three days later, people are singing it in the, the first really big anti-nuclear demonstration there was in Co-NG, Uh, because it just captured the feeling that everybody had but could not express at that point in time. You know, it was three weeks after the disaster at this point. Um, people felt they couldn't go out anymore. Concerts and things were canceled. You couldn't go out to enjoy um, the cherry blossoms because you weren't supposed to be enjoying yourselves when... So many people have been suffering because of the triple disaster. And, and um, it just allowed people to say, yes, there's just something wrong with the way that this is being presented and we need to speak up. You know, the music really captured that feeling that everybody really had but could not say. And it really built that momentum in a way that um, I think just a Twitter feed would not have done on its own.
1: That's right. Um, And Twitter, and you've mentioned Twitter at least a couple of times now, Twitter actually becomes a really interesting actor, um, just Mm -hmm. kind of infrastructurally throughout this story. So listeners who are particularly interested in that kind of social media as infrastructure and and mobilizing um, tool aspect of what's going on here will find a lot in the book um, to think with and to work through. And we'll get to some of that um, uh, in a moment as well. So after looking at cyberspace as a particular kind of space, you take us then into the practice and nature of music and demonstrations in a series of linked chapters 5.1 through 5.4. Now, one of the points that is made um, very powerfully here in this series of chapters is that music is important here as a way to reclaim urban space. right? Um, Right. Because that seems so central, uh, could you talk a little bit about what you take to be some of the most important aspects or aspect of that for us to understand about that notion? Music as a way to reclaim urban space and demonstration?
0: Uh, Well, urban space is kind of um, in short supply in Japan, generally speaking, but especially in Tokyo. (laughs) And uh, urban space for um, political contention, in particular, is in short supply um, in the United States. If you want to have a huge demonstration and, and make an impact, um, you stage a you know a million-person march on on the Capitol, and you park yourself in the Washington Mall, which is a huge amount of space. You know, it would allow it a, a million people to mill around. Um, you know, certainly during Tiananmen Square in 1989, there were there were. You know, uh, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who were part, you know, in front of the, gate, the forbidden city uh, in Tiananmen Square. And so uh, what, what happens in Tokyo is that the urban space that are near the power centers are actually quite regulated. Um, there is a boulevard that goes up to the Diet building, but it tends to be, uh, heavily policed, uh, when there are demonstrations that take place there. Um, the police will often make all the demonstrators, uh, keep themselves to the sidewalks, which actually creates an almost dangerous level of overcrowding. Um, and, um, and there's just, there's just a lot of policing and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, buildings that, that make it very difficult to stage a very, very large and visible demonstration in the city, uh, in Japan. So, um, a lot of what demonstrators are trying to do is, um, they're trying to reclaim a certain amount of space in the city by creating a, a certain level of chaos in the city within, within limits. And so that is part of what is going on with the Shiroto Naran or, or, um, um, uh, uh, revenge of the the amateurs, as some people would say, um, uh, um, demonstrations that took part in the early part of the uh, anti-nuclear movement in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they, this uh, this is a uh, a group in Koenji, which is a bohemian neighborhood in Tokyo, that has been you know quite interested in social movements for a long time, um, and um, you know they're they're basically trying to use kind of a carnival-esque way of attracting attention, uh, from bypassers by, by featuring music on several different trucks. Um, there are rappers, there are punk rock bands, um, there are street chindom bands playing in, you know, playing, uh, within the march, um, so on and so forth. So, so part of this is just using the sound to, to let the sound travel beyond the buildings and beyond the, um, um, the lines of sight. Uh, to To let people hear the contention, so that's that 's part of what is going on and the second yeah and the second part of what is going on is just to simply be a presence um, in front of areas of power, despite the fact that that there are all these police that are bo- blocking up um, all the areas where people could congregate so that 's part of the point um, behind the, um, the the weekly demonstrations in front of the diet. It's about occupying space in front of the diet.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And there's uh, Chapter 5.4. And speaking of sound occupying space, you can hear O Canada being blown by the Ship outside my window right now, possibly, <laughs> of sound creating a particular kind of nationalistic space here. Uh, for example, yes. in Chapter 5.4, um, you really, I think, beautifully and in a very detailed way, take us through some of the particular aspects of this urban space um, that constrain or enable certain kinds of musical protest, including uh, the, the nature of the district, the roots, the aspect of the uh, boundaries or edges, intersections, landmarks sound marks. And if we have time, we'll get to a couple of case studies that illustrate um, some of the distinctions there and the different ways that can happen. But first, what I want to do is just make clear for listeners, some of the examples you just talked about are um, take up the analysis in the central part or the center part of this fifth cluster of chapters. These are um, parts that you use to talk about sound demonstrations. And 5.3 actually looks at after... Um, laying the foundation of the history of the emergence of sound demonstrations in 5.2 and the origins thereof, 5.3 looks at the ways that sound demonstrations are actually developing and changing in the context of these anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now you show here There's a kind of change, a sort of evolution from what you call a presentational format of musicians delivering prepared songs to a participatory format in which rappers are more kind of engaging protesters in different ways. And we'll talk about that as well. Um, So let's actually go right into that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the particular characteristics so listeners can understand why these distinctions in this evolution um, are, are and is important. So presentational, um, you talk about um, it, or there's a lot of attention in this part of the book toward presentational examples here. What is a, an example, perhaps, of a presentational format and what's distinctive about that before we move to participatory
0: Okay. um, I'm taking the terms presentational and participatory from Tom Torino, whose 2008 book actually lays out these particular definitions. And um, my contribution to this particular dialogue is that um, uh, the uh, participatory versus presentational is actually a continuum of performance practice. And And um, protest musicians will will veer from one toward the other, depending on what the political circumstances are. Mm -hmm. And um, what a presentational uh, performance is, is that there is a fairly clear, there's a very clear division between the performer and the audience. The performer is singing and the audience is listening. So this would be, for the extreme example, for example, is if you were to go to the Metropolitan Opera. You're not going to be singing along. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> you're sometimes. not, right? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. You're not going to be I'm singing along unless, unless, you know, you're, you're listening to Verdi's Nabucco or something. But, but, um, but, but anyway, so, so that would be an example of something where you are the audience, you're listening to, um, you know, to, to an opera singer singing at you. Um, a participatory performance is somewhere where, um, the, the audience is actually part of the, the performance. So, an extreme example of that would be, you know, for example, if you were to go to an Irish bar um, in New York City, a lot of times the entire audience is actually also the performers and they're kind of coming and going and playing along uh, a couple of very simple tunes. Um, a, a kind of participatory performance that um, often occurs in Protest is a drum circle, so typically these drum. So you know, we have drum circles that uh, occupy Wall Street. Uh, we have drum, you know, drummers in most demonstrations, uh, po- most post two thousand eleven demonstrations around the world, and uh, we've had a very active uh, drum group um, that has been um, drumming in every single demonstration in Japan practically since two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm and uh and the kind of it's participatory because anybody can join in, and um, they're very simple rhythms um, it, the 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 point is not to make aesthetic music as much as get as many people as possible to participate. There isn't that much of a line between the the audience and the performers and so what has developed in Japan actually out of these drum circles. Is a kind of column response pattern where you're not just doing a column response of slogans or Sprekcore, as they're called in, in Japan, uh, like uh, we don't want nuclear power. But um, what you're getting is, is a kind of um, a musical version of, of um, spread core or column response pattern where you're basically saying these slogans to the beats of the drums. And then that kind of style actually developed to be a kind of rap, where the rappers will do a little bit of freestyling, and then they'll um, say a couple of of um, slogans over rap beats, uh, over beats in a rap style, and then the audience or the protesters will rap back to them. So, in in that kind of performance, there's really kind of much less distinction between who is the performer and who is the audience in that kind of case. And that kind of participatory performance tends to be quite powerful in protest because it makes everybody feel involved. <laughs> it makes everybody voice, you know, the, uh, the, the claims that they want to make against the government or make against our nuclear power.
1: Great. And so this chapter, I think, really beautifully takes us into examples of this um, spectrum between presentational and participatory modes. And you talk here about, and I'll just name this and then we'll move on this sort of evolution that happens as the movement shifts its focus. And this is between, you know, 2011 and 2013, from raising awareness to mobilizing citizens, from expressing discontent to a desire to actually change. National energy policy. So there's a really interesting movement there. And then finally, at the end of this cluster of um, chapter five. 1 through 5.4, as I mentioned before, there's this really interesting look at music and urban geography. And we won't have time to talk about this in detail, but I just want to mark for listeners that there are two interesting case studies here. You talk in detail about TWIT no Nukes, so bringing us back to Twitter, right, and the, the mobilization that Twitter enables, and also no nukes more hearts, um, and talk about the different ways of using sound to navigate and create urban space and urban geographies. In in These examples.
0: Now, yes, um, could I just? Of course, please I just say. Um, okay, um, the chapter five point three is um, is basically uh, um, an exploration of the so called sound demonstration, and what a sound demonstration in Japan is actually quite unlike demonstrations that you might see in other parts of the world, in the sense that um, it's there there are quite musical entities. So, for example, you might have a truck that has a reggae singer and rapper. You might have another truck that has um, uh, a, a punk artist or a rock band or um, other kinds of actual live musicians on it. But uh, the, the word sound demonstration is, actually means a demonstration with a sound truck. Mm-hmm. Which, mean, which is a, which is a truck with a sound system that might have some of these these kinds of artists, and um, the, the, um, what was very interesting to me was at the very um, early stages of the anti-nuclear um, protests, you know, particularly in 2011, was that the the music tended to be so-called presentational in the sense that Ranking Taxi, a reggae singer, would actually come up and sing an entire song and he 'll have a call and response pattern embedded into that song, but most of it was really him singing and people listening as they marched along um, by two thousand uh, and twelve and that was appropriate in two thousand and eleven when um, people were still not comfortable with speaking out. Um, they had this kind of dull feeling that things were bad, but um, they were in, at a state when they actually wanted to listen to somebody, tell them what was wrong, the negro power. In 2000, by 2012, many people had, you know, started to believe the nuclear village um, argument against nuclear power, and and so at that stage, what you actually wanted to do was not convince people that there was something wrong as much as um, get people to become more involved in the movement. Mm-hmm. And so the participatory mode of sound demonstrations was much more apt for that particular stage of the movement because everybody already. Many people were already against nuclear power. What you wanted people to do was to voice their opposition to it. So this kind of rapping pattern of the rappers st- stating a slogan and then the um, protesters responding to it in rhythm, that kind of participatory style was much more appropriate for that uh, that stage of the movement.
1: Thank you so much. Now, as we move um, sort of further into the book, we're also moving further toward our conclusion and we won't have time to talk in detail about a lot of the interesting things that are happening here. But again, I just want to kind of point this out and name this for listeners Um, so that when they get their copies of the book, their hands on a copy, they'll know um, they can explore this. Now, Chapter 6 looks at another space. Um, This is the space of the festival, and it takes us into um, different ways, focusing on three particular cases of different ways that political ideas can be communicated um, by approaches taken by festivals. You've already talked about the No Nukes concerts, um, and that's one of the examples. The chapter also looks at the Atomic Cafe at the Fuji Rock Festival, and it looks at a very different kind of festival called the Project Fukushima Festival. These are three different kinds of events doing three very different kinds of work. And again, we won't have time to talk in detail about them, but it's a really interesting and important part of the study, I think. Now, after that, we have a chapter that looks at recordings, This uh, the fourth kind of space. And it looks specifically at the complex layers of self-censorship that are happening in recordings. Mm-hmm. Now, nuclear power, of course, is a taboo topic, so musicians rely on different um, ways of shaping their medium and shaping their music to get their views across. You talk about uh, allegory, you talk about metaphor, and you talk about metonym, as it's used by a number of different kinds of artists to do this. Now, just to give listeners a very brief taste of the kind of thing that they'll find here do you have a particular example um, of an artist who's who's doing this using allegory or metaphor and metonym as a way both of self censorship, but also as a way of communicating despite um, these prevailing silencing um, issues that you talk about in the book
0: yeah Well. So, um one of the more poetic um, responses to this was one by Kururi, which is a, a Kyoto-based rock band. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the members of Kururi have been quite active in relief efforts in the Tohoku area since 311. Um, they visited a lot of the coastal towns that got wiped out by the tsunami. And so um, uh, one of the songs that they have on on their 2012 album is called Soma. Soma is the name of a town that is on the coast of Fukushima that was badly hit by the tsunami. And um, it's actually an ode to all the towns that have become tainted or um, irretri- irretrievable because of the nuclear power accident. Um, about 160,000 people had to evacuate uh, from uh Towns that were close to Fukushima Daiichi, and many of them still have not been able to return. And so this is actually an ode to these kinds of towns. And so through both music and words, um, Kishida, the, the leader of Kururi, is actually evoking the scenery of this lost town that 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 people can't quite return to. You know, so the the symbols seem to evoke the waves. The trumpet seems to evoke a soaring sky, you know, as as a steel guitar. Um, it's a very, very poetic and very subtle kind of way of drawing attention to the crisis.
1: Great. Now, as we move toward our conclusion, we also move to the conclusion of the book. Chapter 8, which functions as a conclusion, looks at the continuities between the anti-nuclear protests that make up um, the central part of the analysis of the book and later protests. And specifically, it takes us into the the continuities and contrasts between these anti-nuclear protests and the movement opposing the secrecy law. Now we opened um, early on talking about the nature of the secrecy law. Can we? Can you close for us as we move toward our conclusion of our conversation by talking about this transition for you? Um, what are some of the most important aspects of these continuities, or or, or not, between the anti nuclear and the secrecy law protests?
0: They're they're quite similar. In terms of actual musical content, in the sense that uh, the centerpiece of the so called seals protests, which are student protests that have um, happened since the uh, the secrecy law was was passed in two thousand and thirteen um, they all many of them involve sound trucks they involve rappers, and they involve this kind of call and response pattern um, the 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 one thing that is different between the um, the, uh, the anti-nuclear protests, um, sound demonstrations, and the seals sound demonstrations is genre because the seals demonstrators tend to tend to favor certain kinds of 1990s hip um, J-pop. Um, they tend to play uh, a lot more EDM mm-hmm. um, than than the, the people from the anti-nuclear movement who tended to, to play more kind of funk, you know, 70s rock and uh, and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, but the technique is and 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 um, general style is actually quite similar, which is that you're doing a call and response pattern of slogans. Mm-hmm. Um, what is interesting about the the seals movement, uh, which actually spans two issues, the first being the the secrecy law, but the second is the um, is is protest against uh, the Abe governments. Um, uh, shall we say, remilitarization of Japan by um, promoting so-called collective self-defense of Japan for its allies, making it possible for Japan to send troops overseas for the first time um, since World War II. That's really what most of the SEALs protests are are actually about. But... um, Mm -hmm. The thing that is different about the Seals of Protest is that, A, it's been very well covered in the press. And the second point is that uh, one of the reasons why it's been very well covered by the press is because students have been involved. These are college students who were largely absent from the anti nuclear protests. And... um, um, they've been led by a couple of very charismatic students uh, within SEALs who are also quite photogenic, which I, I think has helped to to bring them a lot of media attention. But it, it, um, it signals kind of a new phase of social movements in Japan because the young people are involved and because it's getting a lot more media attention than it had before.
1: So thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. We're now kind of in our conclusion, and I just have a couple things I want to ask you. Um, As we move toward our conclusion, and we move now to the end of the book, this is not the end of this project. Now you open um, the book, or you talk early on, about the fact that this monograph is intended to be part of a larger project on protest music in contemporary Japan, which also involves a forthcoming monograph. So um, as we kind of wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about the book to come. Um, What's this other forthcoming monograph, and what can we expect to find when that comes out?
0: Okay, Um, I actually have several projects at the moment that are related to this project. Um, The most uh, closely connected is a book that is um, also under contract from Oxford University Press uh, that is entitled um, uh, Revolution Remix, uh, Intertextuality in Protest Music where I'm actually talking about the different kinds of intertextuality that one often sees in protest music, not just in Japan, but in other parts of the world. You know, you, you see it in the Umbrella Movement of Hong Kong, you see it in Gizzy Park, you see it in lots of other um, post-2011 movements. Um, so the idea is that um, the easiest way to get attention for a song uh, when a movement actually starts is to reference a song that has been Affiliated with another protest movement, or that everybody already knows, which is what Saito Kazuyoshi does when he sings, uh, when he remakes the no uh, Commercial into a protest song. So that's the uh, that's what that particular book is about. It it talks about different kinds of intertextuality, um, and I come up with about fifteen different categories, which include not only so called cover songs but also mashups, um, adaptations of a genre. Um, metaphor and allegory, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that's one kind of book that I'm doing and then I'm also working on an edited volume called Sonic Contestations of Nuclear Power, uh, which I'm co-editing with Jessica Schwartz, who is a um, a specialist in the Marshall Islands and that particular book uh, looks at the entire nuclear cycle, if you will, from uranium mining, to nuclear testing, to the nuclear bomb itself in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to um, more nuclear testing, such as the Bikini Atoll, and then um, waste disposal. And we talk about um, sonic and musical reactions to each one of those stages. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, another project that I'm working on is, uh, I'm the co-editor along with Eric Drott, on the Oxford Handbook of Protest Music. Where we're exploring the ideas of space, place, and uh, intertextuality or tactic um, from an international viewpoint. And uh, we, we have about 30 uh, some authors that will be contributing to this particular volume. Great.
1: And before we close, um, there's obviously, and it's going to be obvious to listeners, certainly to you and I, there's a ton of stuff in the book, right, um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. But is there anything in particular that didn't come up or that we didn't talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners before we
0: close? No? Uh, (laughs) Well, I think um, we we talked... Only about Japan in this particular, um, I only talked about Japan in this particular book, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that self-censorship and censorship does not only take place in Japan. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, the art world globally is quite dependent on some very, very rich individuals and corporations. So it's very, very difficult to stage an art show, for example, that is anti nuclear. Mm-hmm. It's it's not difficult to stage an art show that is about three eleven, but it's very difficult to stage an art show that is explicitly anti nuclear. Mm-hmm. So, so this kind of thing is not limited to music and it's not limited to Japan.
1: Well, thank you so much for making the time. It's a great book. And again, um, I want to also highlight the importance of the website that allows us to experience um, some of this music and these protests and this sonic environment that you write about I'm so compellingly here. So thank you and best of luck with your next work. Thank you very much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us
0: and we'll catch you next time.